Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another special episode of Finding Peaks. I am your hostess with the mostest, Brandon Burns, Chief Executive <laughs> Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers, bringing it live at five, so to speak. I yeah, think that's what that's the kids say enough. in the cliche yeah. world. It's not five anywhere during this time, but <laughs> just to have fun with you guys, grab your popcorn and your soda, especially you, the family systems out there, because we got a very special guest on today. Uh, but before we introduce our guest, as always, co-host here today, Clinton Nicholson, LPC, Hello, LAC, everybody. all the clinical things, as the kids know back at home uh, in that regard. And then we're joined today by uh, Ryan Roy with Crisis Case Management, president, I should say as a title in that regard. Welcome to the show, sir. So grateful to have you and thanks for being with us. Just to kickstart this, of course, you know, we met you just a short month ago or so and um, uh, well, our business development rep I apparently was dropping her kid off at a kung fu class or something and then saw your guys' <laughs> sign and here we are today talking on an episode and you know just greatly inspired by what we've been able to learn from you guys and what you're doing out there uh, not just in the communities around the United States but globally and uh, so to, you know to kick this off let's let uh, everybody at know at home kind of um, you know who you are uh, how you got to you know crisis case management and uh, you know the philosophy behind uh, the company that you work for health consultancy, um, which is just a, a bunch of fam fancy words for saying that we work within the behavioral health space. Uh, we do a tremendous amount of really heavy and really complex psychiatric work, um, crisis work, uh, high acuity, complex family systems, high death risk, uh, legal issues, hospitals, hospitalizations, um, profound mood and thought disorders, uh, substance abuse issues. Um, and that's really the, the start or some of the, the places that we start working with what we think is the most significant player in all of this work, um, which is the family system, something that you mentioned before. And that work continues from an institutional standpoint and from our team or teams um, well into recovery or wellness as we continue to manage the, the continuum of care from what we like to call pre-contemplation where a family system or a spouse or a child or a business partner is contemplative about change or contemplative about systemic change guiding them from pre-contemplation through an intervention, through treatment, placement, um, reintegration back into the household, the business, their life, and well into um, their recovery or wellness and, and whatever that will look like. What, what that means from this looking out is we have a team of about 80 across the country, Boston, New York, Miami, and, and here in Los Angeles. We work nationally and globally, which means unlike a therapist or a psychiatrist, we go to the work. Um, if it's in a jail cell in Boise, if it's in a hotel suite in Mexico City, if it's on someone's front lawn in uh, Philadelphia, that's where the work is, that's where we go, and that's where we, um, our teams start to attach themselves to that family system and to the work. And a lot of times that is about containment, stabilization, 
um, diagnostics, therapization, um, and really continued um, kind of a series of micro interventions through a variety of different inflection points, whether it's as simple as, you know, letting a mom know that it's okay if you don't um, respond immediately to a text message. It's okay if you shut your phone off for the night. Um, it's okay if you don't fire off another $500 when your son or daughter is bullying you or gaslighting you. Um, and, and really, again, like focusing on the family around um, where the fire is or where the fire may be. I think that's a good kind of thematic look at who we are and what we do. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I appreciate that. It, I mean, it sounds your crisis case management. I think it's informed by everything you just stated that the families are generally uh, calling you guys in a moment of crisis or with a history of crisis uh, within their family systems. And you know, for any of the you know families out there that are going through crises currently uh, within their lives, uh, whether they're going to reach out to you know your firm tomorrow or to a place like you know Peaks Recovery Centers. What is oftentimes the first thing you're trying to negotiate with a family system? Because they're desperate for hope and change and these sort of things. But you know, before we can get from point A to the end of a potential you know journey, whether that's recovery oriented or otherwise, um, that's going to come with uh, some, some steps in between it. So, kind of, what is that first approach with family systems to, you know, maybe calm that noise? I mean, I heard some of it certainly through, hey, we're just going to put down the phone for the night. We're not going to send that $500. Give yourself some grace and love as a family system. You're doing the best you can, uh, but you know, without me, you know, kind of maybe stealing the show here. What is what is that kind of initial energy you're trying to provide back to the family system? We we, we really get calls at two different places along the continuum of care. One is from a case management standpoint when someone, a loved one, is further along. They may be about to discharge from residential. Something may have blown up. Um, not from a, a, a profound crisis standpoint, something may have blown up along the way with their, their PHP or their living environment. And it's not necessarily like rush them to a hospital or rush them back to residential, but to get in to stabilize. Um, that's really about half of our phone calls from discharge planners or therapists um, that want our help in integrating with a treatment plan and then help like actualizing a treatment plan post discharge. That's about half of our book of business from a crisis standpoint. Um, it's why was, my head was kind of bobbling when you were, when you were forming that question, it really is all shapes and sizes, right? Okay. Um, I, I'm actually shocked sometimes that any family system anywhere um, that one person within it has the wherewithal and awareness to raise their hand and ask for help, you know, especially with, and this is an indictment or judgment of family systems with the corrosiveness um, and, and a lot of times um, systemic and generational trauma um, that that family system has that they're capable, not, not from us, from anybody, that they're capable of asking for help at all. Um, mm -hmm. the one word that comes to mind isn't necessarily an answer to your question, but I think it's the thing that they respond to the most is authority. If, if we can't 
in, if we can't connect with them as, with a sense of authority, um, then there's really no reason for them to hire us. What they're looking for, um, I think whether they know it or not, is someone to step into the middle of the fire with them, take a deep breath, not be emotionally attached like they are. They have a loved one in crisis. They're in it. They've been in it for months or years or decades. Um, their ability to see what we see from a professional, non-emotional investment standpoint is just different. And to really get in there with a plan and a sense of authority and collaboration, honor where they're all at, but say the next healthiest, best step is this. Let's do that. And then once that kind of rubber hits the road, even pre-admission or pre-engagement sometimes, unbeknownst to them, because they've been in crisis living for so long, that's all they know, I think that can give them a sense of relief. Um, and mm -hmm. that may be the unanswered question they were looking for. To step back for a second, we get a lot of calls from families that have been through 10, 15 treatment environments. They've had their pockets picked. They've been misdiagnosed. They are very savvy in terms of like um, residential facilities, the lingo, the speak, all of it. And they're really emotionally and financially and physically exhausted. They most likely have a loved one from a mood or thought disorder standpoint that will always need some kind of care. Um, and they're really just asking for help. And I think our, not that we have a magic wand or a special sauce, we do not, but I, I, our collaboration and our industry knowledge, we've been doing this for a long time. We have a big, huge team with massive Rolodexes. Our ability to kind of roll up our sleeves and get into the conspiracy with them and mm -hmm. hold their hand and walk them out of it um, without false promises, I think that's another, um, I think, thing that sets us apart or makes me proud of, of how we present ourselves every day. Yeah, I mean, I think that that image of um, walking into the fire with the family is really powerful because that, that's really what you're describing. You guys are actually racing towards the fire rather than running away from it. And all of those, those sort of components that you described earlier on, like uh, clients and patients with uh, high psychosis, high death risk, you know, all of these, what the uh, most treatment facilities in the industry really look at as liability really are what you guys race towards. And that's a pretty powerful um, mission as a company. And, um, yeah, I'm just really curious, like, how do you maintain that energy? Because I, I think that there are so many, that just, to, when I think about that from a longevity standpoint, I just, I, I can see the emotional uh, kind of wear and tear that that, might, that that might create. So I'm just curious about what that looks like for you guys. Well, I, I know personally, it's my, my recovery, therapy, my dog, <laughs> my um, really honoring kind of the, the jackass child in me. Um, and that's just me personally. Um, sure. And professionally, you know, this isn't camp. This isn't rehearsal. Right. We're, we're, we're doing this. We're running a business. And these things I'm talking about are really happening. 
right? And we and, and mm-hmm. we we got sometimes we gotta go. The the first name in our business is crisis for a reason. The phone calls that we get, we get for a reason. You know, a lot of days we got to have people on planes 20 minutes ago. And I, I think two things. One, we're so team oriented internally. We're never asking one individual to carry everything because they've got so much collaboration and support, whether it's booking planes or, you know, getting VOBs run at a facility or looking around the corner, this problem or this problem, or someone's working with an overwhelming family. I just, I can't deal with the mom right now. We can bring another team member in to integrate immediately. So that individual and their skill set can be honored with that part of the job. We're really, really adept at doing that. And I think that skill for us institutionally has come out of necessity, um, not necessarily virtue. Um, and also, like we were talking about before the Zoom, you know, we're constantly paying for team members um, to go to onsite, to do intensives, um, to do trainings they want to do. Um, we have a wonderful director of case management who was one of our most senior case managers, and now she, she's essentially our internal. Um, uh, how do I say this? <laughs> Our internal like coaches coach. So she's the one that really day to day is monitoring. Is this team working well together? Um, is that person getting triggered or going through cross transference with a client or with a family member or with a therapist at a facility? How can we best support that? Uh, how do we? How can we constantly remind ourselves? that we don't know what we don't know, which is so important to our business. We're not making widgets, people die, right? We have to like stay frosty and fresh. And if we get jaded and cynical, that's a real problem for us, obviously culturally, but as a business, that's a real problem as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate uh, the question, Clinton. And then as you know, as well too, Ryan, I, I, I'm curious about, you know, you, you find a place, maybe you did an, an Indeed, you know, job application or something that brought you on board with, you know, crisis case management at, uh, in the first place, however that path, you know, came to be. You step into a center that's motivated to help family systems in a world, I mean, we know the history and we've talked about a lot here, in, uh, you know, Finding Peaks episodes the you know uh, corruption and the the decisiveness uh, divisiveness and all of these features of you know we we use the language earlier I'll just keep it going the rehab industrial complex you know here in the United States of America and I imagine coming onto the role there's a great deal of hope and passion around what you're doing at the same time there's probably some immediate experiences that you learned of like what is going on with either you know, uh, inpatient residential programs or outpatient or whatever it was that you were trying to case, member, you know, case manage uh, family members to. And I'm just curious if you can walk us through kind of what it was like to walk into the environment with the passion to help the need that's out there, but then also to get exposed to kind of the sickness of the behavioral health care industry. Um, the, for me, they're not connected. Um, I, okay. I grew up in downtown Boston. Um, I went to grammar school with our founder. Um, We both lost brothers to untreated alcoholism. My brother Duncan died of a heroin overdose in a hotel room in Bangkok in 1996. 
Um, and Mike's older brother and my middle brother, we all went to the same grammar school. Um, I, I was a screenwriter in Hollywood. Um, I was on a fishing trip in Miami like eight and a half years ago. I stayed behind for a couple days to hang out with Mike. We were having coffee and I, um, I had a really good screenwriting run and then two years of kind of hell alone chain smoking in a studio apartment. And I just, mm -hmm. I just blurted out to Mike. I'm like, I have no idea what you do, but if you ever need any help, I'd love to help. And I started out with CCM doing a very little amount of marketing work. Um, and it just kind of exploded into this thing. Um, and in the last eight years, the company has grown from this to this and, and here I am. Um, it, it became, and this is, I'm so grateful for this. Um, it's become one of the most significant happy accidents of my life. I mean, I come from the families that we work with. Um, yes, this is a job. Yes, it's grueling. Yes, it's emotionally draining. We really do help people, you know, yeah. like for real. And it's incredibly rewarding, uh, whether it's team members or clients or, or their collaboration with facilities. It's genuine and it's real and it's in real time and it's no joke and I love it. Um, to your question, we're, we're lucky um, in a couple of aspects. One, we're primarily cash pay. Um, we, we are, insurance won't go near us. So are the clientele that we deal with and also the facilities that we deal with are primarily cash pay. And because, you know, probably 80% of our clients are primary mental health and maybe a little bit of substance abuse, but it's primary mental health. The pool of facilities we're dealing with that have the clinical chops to deal with these presentations is a lot smaller than just like a general dual environment. Um, that said, I mean, there's shady people around every corner in this business. I don't care what where you're living. Um, and yeah, we get, ex we and I get exposed to it all the time. Um, another lucky thing or kind of built in cap for us is we don't do any PPC or PR per se, which means that all of our business comes from referrals from past clients, from facilities, from attorneys. Um, and we honor that with everything because that's what keeps our lights on. And we understand mm -hmm. that they're calling our name. And when we refer a family to a facility, we're putting our name behind that. That's our business. And I think we protect that with so much from top to bottom that that kind of keeps the shadier part uh, that keeps us away from the shadier parts of our business, of our industry. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate the insights uh, there as well. I, you know, I ask out of curiosity because you know, in the first experience of meeting you, at, uh, especially with such a powerhouse case management program that you're running, you know, I felt like in a way, you know, it's it's part of your role to right size the individual that's in front of you, and you know, in that way, I, I you know, I felt like we the first time we met, we were really kind of going back and forth to ensure that yeah, this is going to be a valuable potential. Uh, referral partnership down the road, or it's not going to be. Uh, and so out of that experience, uh, that's where the question of curiosity came from. And 
uh, grateful for you sharing that with uh, with everybody at home. Some top of mind, Clinton? Yeah, I'm just I'm curious. So what what do you guys really look for in a facility? I mean, especially with mental health primary being the a, a large percentage of your patient population. I mean, that is that is a pretty small pool. I don't think people necessarily realize that there isn't a, a there aren't a whole lot of options out there. So I am curious, sort of, what you guys look for and what makes a, a treatment center sort of um, really a, a match for you and and the clients that you serve. I mean, the the first word that comes to mind um, is collaboration. You know, and, and okay. that's for yeah. two, that's for two reasons. One is for our clients, right? Is when we show up at someone's door with a client, um, you know, we're, we're showing up with everything that we know and everything that we don't know, um, and some goals, um, and a desire to partner with a, something that we're not. Right? We're not a treatment facility. We're not a PHP. We're not an IOP. We do have licensed clinicians on our team. We're not assessing people. We're not doing diagnostics. What we need for our clients is the most appropriate collaborative partner at that point through the continuum of care. Right? So if there's two identical facilities with identical staff and one is a closed off antiquated um, it's our way only facility, and the other one is is open to one plus one equals three collaboration. And keeping in mind that we're not trying to do your clinical director's job for you, we just want to honor the fact that that's our client, and this is a part of the continuum of care. And our desire, from a business standpoint, is to work with that family for months and months and years and years because the recovery process and the continuum of care process, it's not 30 days and out. It, this is a process mm -hmm. from a brain restoration standpoint, from a family system standpoint. Um, I think that would be the most important word is collaboration. Yeah, that's, I think that's great. You know, I, I think we use this term interdisciplinary a lot of times and typically it's referring to sort of like the, the inner workings of an actual organization, but this idea of interdisciplinary being a, across companies across um, a, this collaboration expands way beyond just what's going on within an actual facility and really it, it, it starts to connect uh, larger parts of the community because you, what you guys have is this you, you specialize in this this is something I mean case management is so under um, underappreciated in so many ways because this this is the long game you know that's what you guys are really playing the long game and the way that you guys are engaging with the family, you're playing the long and the deep game at that point. You know, that's a, that's a pretty, um, that's an embedded model. So I think it's great. And I, I love this idea of just like really expanding what it means to be in a really interdisciplinary and collaborative relationship between organizations. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we, even today we have three or four case managers that are in clinical meetings at facilities with their clinicians, you know, not to awesome. look over, not to look over their shoulder, but to 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 hear and listen and report back, and to add different perspectives from the family or the historical information. Or when that happened on Tuesday after group, she lit up the boyfriend like this, and then this happened and this happened. To truly <laughs> collaborate with them, and and both ways. Absolutely, yeah, that's great. I get goosebumps. That's <laughs> just the, the clinic, clinical nerd in me. Sorry. Yeah. 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 
it makes me want to take a nap. So we, we have... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so in, in, and from my, you know, the th one of the things we talk about at uh, Peaks Recovery Centers uh, a lot of the times, or uh, more, more so as of recent, right, is, you know, we're resourced uh, primarily through insurance dollars as an out-of-network provider, uh, PPL plans and so forth, and those, those resources, namely the reimbursements, come in, and, we, you know, we've come up or learned new language for our organization that, you know, we have this business thing that is Peaks Recovery Centers, and then we also have this community thing. And with only so many resources, uh, we can only contribute to the community you know, in, in so many efforts. One of those most important things, of course, is family systems. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a second piece from there can be our peer recovery coach model. A third piece could be uh, case management. But uh, when, when your resources are only so much, you know, in an organization that's dedicated to the inpatient sort of model at the end of the day, these resources you know, generally are going to suffer in that way, you know, from a community standpoint. And, and I really see your services uh, in this uh, sort of dichotomous sense as really community-based and fundamentally based in that regard to be able to point at the institutions that are appropriate for care um, and to have those private pay dollars and resources come in to actually give the family all of the community resources that are potentially in front of them uh, is pretty powerful. So, you know, with that, um, being a community-driven organization, you know, what are the, what are the challenges uh, for you guys as an organization? You know, here at Peaks, our challenges are inserting those communal aspects, but being a community-based model, you know, some, what are the, some of the challenges maybe that family systems are calling on you guys uh, to support them with, uh, where your services may, you know, maybe start to experience some of the challenges like we do on that community side of things? Such a good question. <clears throat> You know, it's families aren't a monolith, right? It's all anecdotal. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I think I would wish in some cases that, you know, that one more family member or there, no, I'm not even talking about money, um, or there, yeah. there could be one more month, you know, for a light to go off in one more family member. Um, to not for us, but to see that there's another way, right? And whatever that way may be, um, mm -hmm. you know, again, like I, I come from these families that we work with and if I could wave a magic wand, I, I think it would be more global psychoeducation, you know? Um, and, you know, we talk about this all the time, like, how can we get this whole family to do to start doing some real family work, you know, mm -hmm. um, and then what comes out of that individually and how will that start to trickle down into their own children, their own relationships, their own holding a door open for someone at 7-Eleven, all of it, and then looping back to selfishly from the care of the IP standpoint, you know, mm -hmm. what, wherever they are in the continuum of care, there's so much focus on that fire and putting that fire out and what happens next. How can the simultaneous care individually and collectively of the family system start to hold the person in crisis as everyone is evolving? I mean, I, I, mm -hmm. at, at the end of all admissions calls, um, I try to remind people of two things, you know, 
One is that self-care is so critically important right now for a number of reasons because of the crisis that you're living in and also you starting to model that behavior for loved ones, a child, a spouse, a parent, whatever, it's incredibly important, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. I mean, we help some people, but then you get a phone call and you're like, wait a second, this is one of like 700,000 families that are presenting exactly like this. And I think that that feels daunting sometimes. There's just... I mean, you guys should have 1.2 million beds, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, working, that work, daunting. Yeah, yeah. working on <laughs> operationally. Yeah, we're working on scaling yeah, it. Uh, certainly at this time, the goosebumps are gone. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're absolutely gone now. So yeah. <laughs> when uh, you know, when I th when I think of concepts of self care, uh, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot are are boundaries and on on finding peaks and certainly in peaks recovery centers and and no doubt in crisis case management, uh, and and through that systems and and you know families come to me and like oh I held a boundary with the client you know with my loved one Brandon but it didn't work and it's like well describe to me that boundary and then they describe it and it's generally like a structural thing for them right I'm going to put a wall here I'm going to put a curb here stop the behavior by moving these sort of you know metaphorical structures around and it's uh, it's missing the target in that regard and but it feels like there's a real power and an essence once families obtain what a true boundary is. And, and, you know, and in that regard, self-care comes out of boundaries and a variety of different things. But I'm curious you know, from you know, CCM through your own lens in that regard, you know, how you would uh, help families to identify what boundaries are so maybe they can hear it, from, not from, because we keep talking about yeah, Finding Peaks. Maybe they're like, it. shut up, yeah. shut up you guys, you keep talking. <laughs> maybe through a new lens, we can bring in another you know, vision for boundaries and how families can really start to mold that into their own lives who might be watching this with us today. Um, good question. I, I, I think especially through crisis, it is such a, um, it's such a foreign concept to them in practicality that it becomes one of the series of micro interventions. And it's really about hand holding them even into the realm of holding a real boundary, right? Otherwise it's all mm -hmm. theoretical and also from a strategic standpoint and from an intervention standpoint, we really need them to hold that boundary, you know, from a compliance standpoint. When we talk about emotional leverage, financial leverage, custodial, legal leverage, when we're talking about trying to contain someone, we, we need that coalescence in those boundaries. It, I think it becomes a little bit easier anecdotally within that to say, dad, you need to turn the money off right now. Otherwise this is gonna happen. And it's not necessarily landing with them as a parent or as a human being, it's landing with them as a participant in this conspiracy to get from point A to point B. Um, right. I, I would go to something a mom told me like nine months ago she was talking about holding a boundary with her son. Um, it dysregulated him. It pissed him off. And she smiled and said, this doesn't feel good, right? And the, her son is like, no, mom, it hurts. You know, I can't believe you're doing this to me. And she said, sweetie, 
this is what it feels like when someone cares for you. And from a mother to a son, that's not my line. It was the mom that told me that. I think that's mm -hmm. everything, you know, is, yeah. Yeah. and I think it's, it's a sophisticated internal negotiation for individuals. What's best for me for self-care and what, what am I willing to do up to a certain line? And then how will that be expressed to my loved one? And then the potential consequences of that from a, just from a straight Al-Anon standpoint, if they're none of my business, they're really none of my business. You know, um, yeah. I, I, I don't know if there's a simple, straightforward answer to that question. A lot of it is contextual for us, at least, mm -hmm. um, based yeah. on where we're catching them, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's really important language, you know, that you sh that you shared in there. This is what it is like to be loved, to be cared for. Sometimes to be loved and to be cared for it is against the grain of what our expectations are as individuals. And additionally to that, uh, to, you know, to, to nurture that, you know, the families get that input back. Oh, you're screwing me over or it's, you're, you're doing this and you're affecting my life and um, how dare you and that sort of thing. And, you know, from that shame standpoint, we don't receive that as... Uh, you know, I did a bad thing, but I'm a bad person, right? And because we're really the whole time engaged relationally with our loved one, regardless of their struggles. And so it's really difficult to totally, and it sounds like in all of our experiences for family systems to hear that they're just frustrated by the love and care that they're receiving, not that you as an individual are a bad person in this moment. And, you know, sorting out that shame and allowing parents to experience you know, kind of like what we do collectively each and every day at Peaks and certainly at CCM, you, we experience a lot of negative energy coming our way and, and rightfully so, right? We're treating individuals who are suffering in the world, family systems that are tired, tuckered out, financially strained, all of those sort of things. So of course, you know, they're gonna have an emotional energy to give us, you know, but we learn as professionals and in time, not only through self-care and so forth, to just create that emotional distance to know they're not necessarily yelling at us, they're just expressing frustrations. And out of that, you know, we're not you know, bad practitioners at the end of the day. And um, so those insights into family systems and as much as we can continue to address and readdress boundaries as a concept, I think you know, nationally it becomes an easier conversation and something that you know, they can better understand. And uh, with that, you know, kind of a, a challenge and a question is, so much of CCM, and rightfully so, is focused on the family system. You know, how often are you guys, you know, and this is going to be an anecdotal sort of on the side of CCM, running into situations in which the family calls you, hey, here's, we'll, we'll pay for Johnny to go from point A to point B, we'll do everything, but we don't want to participate in this. Because I think we all collectively know how powerful from a community asset the family system is, but sometimes you just get disinterested family systems. They want the, the sort of cure without the involvement. And how do you walk family systems through that energy they might be giving you in that way? If, if, that, if that was presented to us and there was a, a non-compliant IP um, and there was no uh, apparent leverage um, or even opportunities to develop a therapeutic alliance with them to try to nudge them towards wellness and whatever that may be, um, we, mm -hmm. we probably wouldn't take their money. Wow. Yeah, that's a big say. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's I think because that just... we're, 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 not, we're not in the check cashing business and if there's no yeah. opportunity, and we would look for it, um, if there's no opportunity 
to influence change, what, what, what are we going to do? I mean, absolutely, yeah. I think that's just a testament to how much you guys really believe in this uh, this sort of systems kind of uh, level of of care and what that means for wellness and just long term sustainable recovery. So no, I think it's a great answer. So, absolutely. Yeah, and it's a message I think you know uh, wholeheartedly. Our industry just needs to hear at times that it's that <laughs> you know I. I, maybe we talked about this the first time, Ryan, when we were on the first call together, but you know, every treatment center's website says dual diagnosis, and it's just not the case that that's you know, true at the end of the day. And um, I get it, we're businesses, we have to market, we have to advertise, we have to have patience to stay alive as a program. It's one of those uh, frustrating balances that exist within these business structures. You know, as you said, right, we're not selling Snickers bars or these commodities over here, there's a patient life. Uh, and family system that's in jeopardy here and, and to the very literal sense may ultimately die in the process if they don't achieve their goals and to run into systems that are oriented to, no, we'll just take you and you got a heartbeat and an insurance card or you know, private pay rates um, has come at a significant cost for our industry and it's been so disingenuous. It's also probably how you've arrived at, certainly in your experiences, those frustrated family systems 14, 15 treatment centers later yeah. Uh, in that regard, so um, so I think that's right size, and I think that's balanced, and I really do appreciate you having that mentality to know what distance uh, you guys can actually take a family system in that regard, because you have. We're not we're not unaware of our success either, and we do a lot for a number of different reasons to honor that. You know, we scholarship people and. We will bend over backwards to say yes, um, you know, even if it's net zero for us and we could pay a team member to go do whatever, you know, we'll help. And because we, um, you know, we place a lot of cash pay clients every year, we have a certain gravitas within our industry. And if, you know, we got to go try to help someone get a scholarship to try to help save someone we will go ahead and do that like this is this is what we do you know yeah you you know uh i'm, I'm curious you know at I, I think that's at some point a bridge you have to cross in healthcare, right? Is you're gonna, you, you have you know, customers who can pay for the service and you have customers who can't. And from a community level, it's important to invest in your community, you know, corporate responsibility, you know, uh, uh, business responsibilities within the community in that regard. And so it makes sense you know, that you would um, nurture you know, scholarship opportunities on behalf of individuals. But again, every company is you know, resourced in a way that can always provide the opportunities and just curious from like a, just a systems and team standpoint, you know, how you guys nurture, and I guess this is more for just, you know, the business environments out there uh, from a company that's really passionate about desiring to help people. Uh, it's the reality for Peaks Recovery Centers. It's the reality for addiction treatment centers down the street from us, psych wards and so forth. You know, we just don't always have the resources to help, you know, people. And I'm just curious as a company culture, how you guys, you know, uh, continue forward with the mission and vision while also appreciating that as a real reality of our of our business models. I mean, I don't want to get political, but in, in a perfect world, we wouldn't exist, and there'd be incredibly available healthcare hanging from every tree on the corner. That's the reality, right? Right. We're expensive. We're private pay. Not everyone has post tax dollars just 
laying around um, to have a consultancy help them through crisis and appropriate placement and collaboration so things get done and long support. We understand that. Um, do we have to say no to some people because of finances sometimes? Yes. Do we say yes to people because of finances sometimes? A lower level of finances? Of course we do. Um, and I, I think we talked about this on our Zoom, and I think this is a part of how we kind of pay it forward or backwards, um, is about 70% of our inbound calls, seven out of 10 is non-revenue producing. It's about helping other players in our industry, redirecting them, you know, adding, because we vet so many providers and facilities and hospitals it constantly making sure that the right person or family is connected to the right provider at the right time. Seven out of 10 of our calls are dedicated to that. It's a part of how we market, but I think it's also a part of how we do what we can do to keep good, healthy, integrity-driven blood moving through our industry. Appreciate that. Anything top of mind, Clinton? No, I mean, I just... Uh... I think uh, as this conversation has sort of evolved, I'm just really grateful for um, being able to talk about this part of the continuum of care, because I think it just isn't usually discussed, right? Like it's, but this is actually part of the intervention. Like this, you guys taught, you were talking about these micro interventions, and I just think that's such a, a wonderful concept and something that uh, we don't always pay attention to, that it's really, the, especially early on in, in this process, it's all of these little bits of help and support that you're providing to both the patient and to the family that really starts to move, like as you talked about, from that pre-contemplation to the contemplations, sort of aspects of, of desire and willingness to get help. And, um, but yeah, I think that it's, it's just this, we'd never really talk about the sort of before, you know, like it's always about the during and the after. And so this, I just really have been enjoying this conversation and talking about this level of, um, of service as part of that continuum. I think it's just a, yeah, so I'm just sitting here being happy and okay. enjoying the talk, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and Ryan on, you know, just a couple of follow-up questions and, and we'll tie it out here, but, uh, you know, at, as I shared with you in our first, uh, you know, conference call together, our mission at Peaks is to save lives. And what a challenge that is, and what a challenge you probably experience in, uh, under that, that, uh, that same title. And then our vision is to you know, disrupt an industry through quality of care. You know, here at Peaks, we're learning, you know, as, as we're learning how big the potential disruption is. It can exist in a curriculum, it can, it can exist in the continuum of care, it can exist in we're gonna do the right thing and collect deductibles, it's, it, it can exist in we're gonna advertise in an ethical sense of things, it can exist in we're gonna nurture staff, uh, in an industry of, of high burnout uh, in that regard. And uh, so just giving out some of those examples of you know, potential disruption, they can be you know, small, medium, large at the end of the day, they can be incredibly huge. Um, but if you could, you know, at this time, Ryan, and knowing what you know about you know, the mental health space, case management, you know, crisis, if you could do anything to disrupt it right now, positively speaking, of course, you know, what would that be and what would that look like? Stay away from insurance because that's a whole other okay. conversation. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, that's I, I, I think it would be two things. One, I think it would be um, lowering the barrier 
or eliminating or vaporizing the barrier between presentation and placement, meaning mm -hmm. um, how an IP is presenting, what those needs are, and then what is the most appropriate placement. You know, I, I love Google, but that is not a placement tool, right? Um, second would be, if I could wave a magic wand, it would be requiring family members to start their therapeutic work as their loved one is being admitted, period. Um, like we, one of our most senior interventionists requires both mom and dad to have verifiable therapist appointments before she'll intervene in a loved one. Um, I know there's, there's some NGOs or nonprofits out there that do similar things. Mm. I think the fear of uh, most institutions, most residential institutions is we can't push the payer too far. Uh, we don't want to, we don't want to tear that admission. Uh, but if, mm -hmm. if that, if that, if I could wave a magic wand, that would a hundred percent be it because it would benefit everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in, in our experience, certainly an invested family system is an engaged family system and, and out of that engagement, what you get when you, because it's not linear, right? It's, it's an up and down journey for the patient and their struggles, regardless of what that is. And when those, those ups and downs experiences comes, a family that's engaged and situated is more curious about what to do next and less frightened and panicked in that regard. Uh, and so that's an incredible value proposition. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's small conversations like these that ultimately will hopefully lead families into, okay, when you make that phone call to CCM or to a Peaks Recovery Centers, like, I know from the beginning I got to get engaged in this um, so that uh, this outcome can actually become a reality. Or if, if it's uh, without the family system, if it's this far with the family system, it only has to be this far, you know, when we can communicate healthy with each other in that way. So, um, so yeah, that's the thing I wanted to you know just get at. Always curious about how people are thinking about disruption, what people are finding themselves frustrated with, you know, within our industry, whatever that perspective may look like. Uh, at the end of the day, and so before I kind of take this out on uh, behalf of the episode, you know, Ryan, thanks again so much for being with us. But hopefully, you can just share a little bit about with the viewers about how to find you guys. Um, you know, uh, website, Instagram, maybe all the things you guys are doing out there. Uh, let let the family systems know at home how to reach out to you guys and find you in that way. CrisisCM.com, www.crisiscm.com. Um, everything is on there. And I, I really mean this, like whether you're going to hire us or not, um, if you have questions about any part of anything we've talked about at all, uh, please call or email. We are here to help. That's what we do. Um, that's what we pay our teams to do. That's why we're doing what we do. That's what's kept our lights on for 23 years. Um, and that's what's, I think, created um, a, a space in our business that I'm proud of. Um, so check out the website, text or call or drop us an email or whatever. Uh, we're here to help if we can. I, I appreciate it, Ryan. And to the, and to the viewers out there, as I take you out, the first time I met Ryan, the first time we collectively did as a, as a treatment program in a center, he said the exact same thing to us. Uh, regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstance, the socioeconomic status of the family system, give us a call. We mean it. I didn't have to bring it up. He brought it up. 
we're talking about real genuine people and hardworking people on behalf of family systems and getting people well in a really disorienting environment at times, as, as we've all talked about on Finding Peaks. So uh, you know, thanks again to the crisis case management team uh, nationally and globally working on behalf of family systems. Uh, again, my name is Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers. Uh, please email us thoughts, ideas, questions. That's how we do these episodes, findingpeaks at peaksrecovery.com. Find us on the TikToks, the Facebooks, the Twitters, all the social media stuff. We love you all. Thanks you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>